Hey there, it's Nick, and welcome to the Anamnesis Podcast. Anamnesis is a podcast about history and medicine. This episode, I'm going to be talking about malaria. I'm actually quite excited about this one, because it means I get to talk about the origins of one of my favourite drinks, the gin and tonic. So, let's get to it. Malaria gets its name from the Italian mal-area, meaning bad air, but its origins come from far before that. Its symptoms have been described as early as 2700 BCE in the Chinese text the Ni Ching, which, incidentally, was the oldest known medical textbook. Many ancient diseases are known for their devastating peaks of activity, such as the Black Death's plague or outbreaks of influenza or measles. But malaria has always been there, in the background, whittling away at the human population. As McFarlane Burnett, an Australian immunologist, aptly puts it, there's no doubt that malaria has caused the greatest harm to the greatest number. Malaria has killed peasants and popes alike, and it is put forward as a key player in the fall of the Roman Empire. This disease, more than any other, has directed our history and influenced the shape of the world we see today. As with any other great force of nature, us humans have sought to control and conquer it. For Europeans, at least, this starts with a drug. Now, there are many stories about how quinine, the active ingredient in tonic water, was brought over from South America, but most agree that it was probably first used by the Quechua people of what is now Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador. I uh, really apologize for um, all the terrible pronunciation that I've, I'm going to have to use in this uh, podcast. So, um, uh, if any of you are from uh, South America or from China, I, I really do apologize. You see, these countries have vast swathes of land at very high altitudes and temperatures that can plummet easily. The Quechua realized that the bark of the cinchona tree could be ground down and made into a remedy for shivering. It was also reasonably effective at treating some forms of diarrhea. One of the stories of Quinine's delivery to Europe involves a Jesuit priest, Augustino Salombrino, working in Lima in the early 17th century. He observed the use of this substance for the treatment of shivering. He also knew that one of the symptoms of malaria was profound shivering and rigors. That's uh, another form of shaking. This phase of the disease is, is extremely uncomfortable and can be very distressing to patients and family alike. Agostino attempted to use the substance to bring some relief to these patients by lessening the shivers. Fortuitously, it worked. And better than that, it actually proved effective in curing the malaria. After seeing the curative effects that this compound had on his patients, Agostino quickly sent samples back to Rome for more formal testing. It took off, and for centuries afterwards, the active ingredient, quinine, would be used as the main treatment of malaria. It became an extremely valuable commodity and was one of the prime exports from Peru to Europe. The powder that was sold was also commonly known as Jesuit's bark after Agostino. Fast forward to the early 19th century, and the British Empire was expanding across the globe. More and more officials were being posted to rule over areas in South Asia and Africa. Malaria was endemic there, meaning that it's always around in the population, and was causing considerable issues with employee retention. Quinine was used as a prophylactic agent against malaria. That means an agent that stops you getting the malaria. But the powder was extremely bitter and quite unpalatable. Some of the officers started mixing the powder with water, sugar and soda to offset the taste. This was the first basic tonic water as we know it. They also found that mixing it with a bit of gin allowed them to take their daily dose of, of prophylactic at cocktail hour, rather than first thing in the morning. The addition of citrus fruits, such as limes, to further improve the taste also had the added benefit of, pre of preventing scurvy in the far reaches of the empire. Thus, the gin and tonic, the quintessentially British drink, 
protected its people from disease and allowed the empire to spread to most corners of the globe. Even in our modern age, the burden of malaria across the globe is massive. I remember when I wrote my theses some um, 15 years ago or so, I, I always used to start off by saying over one million children die of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa every year. That's Dr Oliver Cock, a consultant in infectious disease in Edinburgh who also runs the travel disease clinic for the area. So malaria is still very much um, a, a disease that causes a huge global burden. It's a parasitic disease um, transmitted by mosquitoes and mainly affects the tropical areas of this world with the sort of largest disease burden and the, 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 the largest number of people dying of it really in, in sub-Saharan Africa but you'll find it in pretty much all sort of tropical regions of, of the world. In fact, malaria does not affect all people equally. Indeed, mosquitoes tend to have preferred victims for their blood meals. Certain groups who are more likely to be bitten, so um, women are much more likely to be bitten, and pregnant women in particular. So there's something about them uh, that makes them far more attractive to, to mosquitoes, whether that's um, you know, increased blood circulation or uh, their smell, but certainly it's something that makes them more attractive to mosquitoes. Um, so they're much more likely to get it, and of course they're um, with, with huge consequences to, to both them and, and, and the unborn child. The cause of malaria remained a mystery for most of its ancient history. Greek and Roman writers attributed it, as its name might suggest, to bad air, particularly the air around swamps and farmland. It was not until the late 1800s that the cause of malaria was found, and the fact that mosquitoes played an integral part in spreading the disease was known. So you are bitten by a mosquito that, um, as part of their blood meal, the mosquito feeds on you, um, and the mosquito itself is infected with a parasite. Um, a parasite is called Plasmodium, and there's a, a variety of them, um, several out there. The one that most people uh, may have heard about because it's the one that um, causes most people to die is called Plasmodium falciparum. So as the mosquito feeds on you, that um, uh, parasite is um, released into your bloodstream through sort of the salivary gland of the mosquito. And so the mosquito injects the parasites into you during their blood meals. The parasites then make their way through your bloodstream, first of all, to your liver. And that's where they sit in your liver cells for a few days, usually we say for around about a week or so. Um, so you, you don't have any symptoms during that um, time. And after that, they break out of the, the liver cells and start invading your red blood cells. And as part of that, they grow in your red blood cells and keep destroying red blood cells which is responsible for part of the symptoms that you get, including sort of the classical fever cycles that people would get with malaria. These fevers that you get come in regular cycles of pretty specific times. These have been described as things like quotidian fevers or tertian fevers, which means that they occur every day or every third day respectively. And this is related to the species of malaria that has infected you. Other complications of malaria come from damage to organs by clots in the blood. 
the, the, the parasite that causes the more severe form of malaria, the Plasmodium falciparum, um, it also makes these red blood cells quite sticky. So they start to stick and clump together in small blood vessels. And if that happens, then the blood supply to those organs obviously doesn't work as well anymore. And you see all the consequences of that. So you can see people who have malaria affecting their brain or their kidneys as all as part of a, a consequence of uh, your small blood vessels being blocked with lots of clumping red blood cells. Yeah, and ultimately that can lead to um, the person dying. As we've seen, quinine is an effective drug against the malaria parasite. We think that this is because it affects how plasmodium feeds on the haemoglobin in our red blood cells. The parasites, as part of their life cycle within the red blood cells, uh, need to metabolize um, something called heme, which is part of the haemoglobin, for example. Um, and it can be quite toxic to them, so they uh, need to sort of metabolize it and make it less toxic to them. And the quinine is thought to interfere with that metabolism of the heme, um, and hence leave the heme toxic to the parasite. I think that's, that's, that's the thought how it works. Quinine is still used today for the treatment of malaria. However, it has quite a few side effects that do prove problematic. Quinine can cause quite a lot of side effects and requires quite a lot of monitoring. It often requires uh, monitoring of your heart tracing, because it can affect sort of the um, electricity within your heart, if you like. And um, it can also lower your blood sugar quite significantly. So researchers have sought to find other compounds that can be used against malaria. So in terms of uh, treatment, um, quinine, yes, is still used, but there have been some very big studies over the last few years that looked at drugs called artemisinins or artemisinin-based drugs. There's various derivatives of those and compared those to quinine, something that we've been using for much longer. Artemisinin is actually a compound derived from an ancient Chinese medicine but had previously been somewhat neglected in the West due to the effectiveness of our other treatments. Uh, these um, artemisinin-based drugs are thought to work better and that people are less likely to, to die, so there's a mortality benefit, and they generally cause fewer side effects. So overall, where available, we have now moved over to these artemisinin-based drugs uh, for, for treatment of falciparum malaria, that is, which is that sort of the, the, the very bad form of malaria, if you like. So that's probably been one of the major changes in, in the last few years. There's been a big trial in Southeast Asia and, and in Africa then, um, really showing a, quite a significant mortality benefit, particularly in, in, in children for that. And we have adopted that practice also for our returning travelers. One main problem with any infectious disease is the development of drug resistance. This is where an organism develops a mechanism to protect itself against the medicines that we might otherwise use to kill it. Well-known examples of these include the so-called superbugs, like MRSA, a bacterium that has developed a profound resistance to penicillin antibiotics and causes quite a bit of trouble in hospitals around the world. The same happens with plasmodium. Drug resistance has always been a big problem in malaria and pretty much if you look back when the first um, anti-malarias became available, um, sort of, you know, post-Second World War, as soon as that was available on a, 
uh, to, to a large number of people, uh, drug resistance started to emerge. And whenever a new anti-malarial has come on the market, very soon thereafter, you would have seen uh, drug resistance emerging. So we can now see drug resistance pretty much to most anti-malarials we've ever used. Um, people have learned to some extent and uh, when artemisinin-based antimalarials came on the market people have very quickly said well perhaps we should be using them in combination with anti other antimalarials. So this is something that we've learned for example from the treatment of tuberculosis or um, the treatment of HIV where we found if we use several drugs at the same time to, to treat the infection, um, whichever bug we're trying to treat is less likely to become resistant. Um, so people now using artemisinin-based combination therapy. So it's often um, an artemisinin-based antimalarial and at least one further uh, drug uh, mixed with it. Unfortunately though, we have seen over the last few years resistance emerging to these products as well. And initially that was um, just that it took patients longer to clear the parasites rather than outright failure of therapy. Um, and I think it was uh, the first paper, scientific paper indicating that um, particularly in an area in Cambodia was in 2009 where it just took certain patients much longer to clear the parasites than that was the case elsewhere. And since then it's really emerged that particularly in the, that area in, in Southeast Asia um, drug resistance to these artemisinin based products is a real threat and we're now seeing more and more uh, combination therapies um, to which the parasites have built up resistance. So I think um, in, in uh, Cambodia there are, I think there are at least four artemisinin-based combination therapies to which resistance has now been described. Um, so that is a real worry, particularly if that resistance um, zips over to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, then uh, yeah, that, 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 that would be a huge concern. Now, drugs are still very important these days for preventing malaria and treating it when we travel to endemic countries. But much of the great strides in malaria control have been due to relatively simple measures called vector control. This is controlling the mosquito population that spreads malaria to prevent them actually transmitting the disease in the first place. Huge strides have been made in terms of reducing uh, malaria, particularly mortality of malaria over the last decade or so. I think last year, um, the number of people dying from malaria globally was sort of estimated at just over 400,000 people, which you know is a reduction of, of uh, from from what I previously said from well over a million, um, which is just amazing, and that is in part uh, due to um, what sounds like very simple measures. Part of vector control is just having a, an insecticide-treated mosquito net and having access to a, a mosquito net in, in areas which are very resource poor, um, where that's often harder to achieve than, than you think. So I think um, people think at the moment in Sub-Saharan Africa, 
just over half of people have access to an insecticide treated um, um, mosquito net um, and so that certainly has had a huge impact. And there are other um, methods that you can take in terms of you know, controlling the, uh, the vector, so uh, something called um, residual indoor spraying, um, so where you spray the room with um, a, a, a mosquito spray, a knockdown spray to get rid of the mosquitoes. Again, that, that will have had an impact. So it's a combination of, of, of factors that uh, contributed to the dramatic drop of uh, people dying from malaria. Indeed, vector control has played a big role in eradicating malaria from many countries around the world. We had malaria even in England. I think, if I'm right, the last reported case was in the early 1950s. So it was quite common to have um, malaria, certainly within southern Europe, um, where it's now almost completely cleared. Well, I would say it's been clear, but as, as I'm talking, um, in, in, in the last few weeks there have been a few cases in Greece, um, but for the most part it's, um, it, it has left Europe. So there, there, there are countries that have managed to, to get rid of malaria and um, there are a number of countries that are just now on the verge of eradication. So every year the numbers are quite low, not quite zero yet, but the idea is if you put a large amount of effort and focus onto that, you might get them to uh, eradication. So the World Health Organization certainly focuses a lot of effort on, on, on that. Now, looking towards research in the future, an interesting feature of people who come from countries where malaria is endemic is the tendency for them to develop a form of resistance to malaria. Most people think, I suppose, when you know, thinking of the returning traveller, those people coming back from tropical regions, coming back to the UK, for example, so most tourist travellers, um, they won't clear malaria. Um, so they'll become ill and they'll get symptoms and they'll require treatment. Interestingly, though, if you look at areas in the world where malaria is most common, where the highest burden of that is, um, Falciparum malaria is very much a disease of the young. So typically in sub-Saharan Africa it affects children under five. And they get repeatedly infected um, with malaria because they get bitten by mosquitoes um, all the time. And if they survive, um, the, um, the sort of uh, the, the first uh, episodes and the repeated episodes, they might actually develop a degree of immunity to it, so much so that people can be uh, carrying parasites in their bloodstream without necessarily exhibiting any symptoms. So people who are permanently exposed in sub-Saharan Africa, um, provided they have survived this early childhood, um, often develop a degree of uh, immunity, which won't happen to us tourist travellers. Um, we almost invariably, if we get malaria, will fall ill. This has led researchers to look towards a possible malaria vaccine to help control the disease. Quite a lot of people have tried to develop a vaccine um, and wouldn't that be brilliant if, if we had a vaccine that that worked, um, you know, not just for travellers, but clearly for, for those people who are most affected by, by malaria. Developing a vaccine, you know, I'm not an immunologist, but my understanding is that it's very complex because 
um, there are lots of different antigens that the parasite makes and makes at different stages of their life cycle and it, I guess in part will depend on the immunity of the individual person. So it's been proven quite difficult to develop a vaccine compared to some of those, for example, viral diseases that we have vaccines for. However, the natural resistance that some humans show seems to be short-lived, as evidenced by people who have moved away from malaria-endemic countries to ones such as the UK. They are actually a very important uh, group of travellers, um, the so-called uh, VFR, so those visiting friends and relatives. Those are often people who may have grown up in areas where malaria is very common, so they're very used to it, and they might have had it several times as a child. And some of them might consider themselves as at least semi-immune. Um, but then they move to the UK or, 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 or um, to other regions where there isn't any malaria. And uh, they lose that immunity. So time scale, people often quote somewhere between 6 to 12 months or so. Um, I guess there's some variability. It depends on your underlying genetics. But many people lose it relatively rapidly. So often by the time they then go back years later to, to, to their home countries, um, they're certainly not immune anymore. In fact, while they consider themselves potentially as immune, that often leads to them being less likely to take anti-malaria prophylaxis. So those people are often more likely to get malaria in the first instance because they're less likely to have taken any prophylaxis. Um, interestingly, they're less likely to die, um, unlike those who haven't grown up in a tropical country. Um, but yes, you can lose your immunity, certainly to some uh, significant extent. This short-lived nature of the immunity makes developing a vaccine very hard. And yes, there have been several candidates. In fact, there's one uh, that's uh, now, I think, being licensed that as a vaccine is certainly not as good as you know some of the vaccines we use against other diseases let's say hepatitis for example so this uh, the, the, the vaccine that's been in use um, only protects a relatively small proportion of children and probably for a relatively short period of time you sort of need to keep revaccinating children which particularly in resource poor areas can be a problem getting people back for revaccination so it's it's unfortunately not the silver bullet um, while you know any life you can save with that is is brilliant um, but it's 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 not proven um, sort of the uh, the the, the only solution that, that we can have at the moment. So, work still needs to be done on improving vaccines, but the future of malaria control is likely to be multifactorial, focusing on vector control and new drugs too. So, I think people will still be focusing on developing a better malaria vaccine in future. But I think the past has also shown that Measures that sound relatively simple on the surface, like having a mosquito net, are actually hugely effective. And I think just improving people's access to um, uh, mosquito nets um, alone will have a huge impact. So I think there, there, there are sort of the somewhat more complex things like vaccine developments that you can have. Um, there are um, simpler measures like uh, mosquito nets that are actually quite difficult to roll out on a large scale uh, with everybody having access and um, there's also going to be 
I think people focusing on developing other anti-malarials, particularly with the current threat to the artemisinins, so that because if we if we lose the artemisinins, then we're quite stuck. They're, they're our go-to drugs at the moment, and if we lose them because of drug resistance, uh, then we might be back to the sort of mortality levels of the 90s in terms of malaria, so people will be focusing on drug development as well. Well, that's it. So um, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Anamnesis podcast. And a very big thank you to Dr. Oliver Koch for giving up his time to have a chat with me about this fascinating subject. As always, you can find the show notes on anamnesiscast.com. That's A-N-A-M-N-E-S-I-S cast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at anamnesiscast. If you've got any particular topics you'd like us to cover, just drop us a message on Twitter uh, and I'll see what I can do. Also, if you've enjoyed the episodes that have come out, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, I've heard that's supposed to be quite helpful for us new podcasts. Um, And yeah, once again, thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you guys next time.